When Axon Betts Hamilton was a 19-year-old college student, she discovered her identity had been stolen, and that led her to try to learn as much as she could about a crime that affects millions of Americans every year. These days, she researches the topic as an assistant professor of consumer affairs at South Dakota State University. What she didn't know until years later was that her identity thief, the one who had ruined her credit and changed her life, was her mother. She joins us now for this week's Please Explain to discuss identity theft, how consumers can better protect themselves from it, and to tell a bit more about her own story. Accent Bits Hamilton, welcome to our show. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And we want to hear from our listeners. Have you been the victim of identity threat? How would it have changed your life? And uh, Are you concerned? Do you do things to protect yourself from identity theft? You can give us a call. 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WMYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. So, Axon, how many people are victims of identity theft each year? Well, the number of reported identity theft victims in the United States does fluctuate a little bit, um, but according to a Javelin uh, strategy and research survey, uh, we've hit a peak with the number of reported identity theft victims. In 2016, there were 15.4 million victims in the United States, which, which this is a trend that has continued to rise. So in 2011, Javelin found that there were 11.6 million victims in the United States. And we've gone up consistently um, every year, and we have hit a peak of um, uh, 15.4 million victims in 2016. Although federal reports put the number even higher, for example, they say it was 17.6 million people in 2014. I would assume it went up even higher from that. When did uh, the federal government begin tracking complaints? Uh, roughly around two, 2003. So uh, the Federal Trade Commission is the agency, or the federal agency that tracks identity theft complaints, and there is a portal where victims can report uh, their experience as an identity theft victim, and what the Federal Trade Commission does with those complaints, it's, it, it's a portal called Consumer Sentinel, they will share that information with other agencies in the hopes of looking for patterns of identity theft, perhaps in different regions of the United States or even in, in uh, local communities within the United States to try and, tr and track down um, these identity thieves. Because identity thieves typically don't just steal one identity. They, they steal multiple identities, and that may be multiple family members within their own family, or it could be several individuals with, within their own community. What about organized crime? Organized crime, uh, definitely uh, those folks do uh, utilize identity theft to finance other uh, criminal activities. And people in other countries, I don't know, somehow uh, I got into my head that uh, there were people in Romania or Ukraine or Russia who were doing this sort of thing. Yes, and that's an excellent point to uh, bring up. So identity theft knows no boundaries, and with the, the technology that's available out there, as a resident of the United States, your identity could be stolen by someone 
across the globe. And that makes it challenging to uh, track down the identity thief and hold them accountable because law enforcement agencies are bound by their jurisdictions. And that's one thing that I, I discovered through going through my own process of trying to track down the identity thief, these law enforcement agencies can't do much outside of their jurisdiction, so that is a definite barrier in in a lot of cases of identity theft with tracking down the person responsible for the theft and then subsequently holding them accountable. We're already getting calls from people who've been victims, but before we get to them, what information does a thief need to steal your identity? Well, the the primary pieces of information they need to have are your social security number, your date of birth, and your mother's maiden name. And how do they obtain that information? Do do they, I mean, uh, obviously if they're in a foreign country, they're not sifting through my trash. Correct. So there are websites on what is known as the dark web where social security numbers and, and dates of birth and other personal information are sold for as little as 50 cents a piece. And how would they have gotten that? Uh, I'm not, uh, although I am asked my social security number sometimes or the last four digits uh, in specific instances, but uh, usually in, in situations where I feel perfectly safe. Right. So what happens is that, uh, say in some cases, a employee of a facility that collects personal information, such as a doctor's office or an insurance provider, they might steal clients' personal information and then sell that to third parties that may post it on the dark web for sale. And what happens in cases like that is that, you know, this rogue employee, for lack of a better way to put it, steals that personal information, sells it to someone else who uses it, and then they sell it to someone else, and they sell it to someone else and sell it to someone else, and it just continues. So there are multiple opportunities once your information is out there for it to be stolen and resold. How easy is it to open up a credit card in someone else's name? Well, experience says it it is pretty easy, and and I'm going to go back to to my case a little bit here. Particularly with children, uh, credit card issuers don't do the best job of verifying an applicant's age. We've gotten better with that over the last 20 years or so, but taking the time to verify an applicant's personal information and making sure that every detail is in, on an application is indeed accurate takes resources. It takes personnel time. It, take, it, it takes the cost of hiring someone to do that work, and sometimes that, that just doesn't happen in, in the way that it should. So due to a, a lack of information verification, it, it can be pretty easy to uh, open up a credit card in someone else's name. And uh, sometimes I get unsolicited credit cards in the mail. I have to make a call to actually uh, begin using it. Uh, Could somebody just going through my mail find that and then make that call and say, well, I've changed my address? Yes, 
And um, one way that identity thieves, using the example of pre-approved credit offers, will use those to get a credit card is if you have an unsecured mailbox. So let's, let's say you live out in the country, your mailbox is out by the your road, the mailman comes by and delivers your mail every day. Well, if that's not a secure box, if, it, if, if you don't have to have a key to get into it and you get a pre-approved credit offer, an identity thief can access your mail. You know, they can drive down the road and grab your mail just as easily as you can, fill out that pre-approved credit offer using your name and address, and then come by later in anticipation of the credit card arriving and take the credit card, activate it, and you're not any the wiser because you never saw the pre-approved credit offer. You never saw the credit card arrive, and it looks as though it's yours. It's your name. It's your address. It's your Social Security number, but you don't know a thing about that credit card. Until you get the bill and you discover that you bought something at a that you never bought at a place Correct. that you've never shopped at. Um, I'm speaking with Axton Betts-Hamilton, Assistant Professor of Consumer Affairs at South Dakota State University. We're talking about uh, identity theft and taking your calls at 212-433-9692. That's 212-433-WNYC. You can also write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. I am Leonard Lopate and this is WNYC and wnyc.org. And Britt from Short Hills, you're on the air. Hi, yes. Um, So back in 2005, um, I I was lucky enough where I got a bill from a credit card that I never applied for. And I called the credit card company and said, I never applied for this. And I said, oh, the people changed the address the day that the bill was mailed out. And at that point, I knew there was a problem. So I called our credit agencies and I tried to put a freeze on the credit um, or an alert, sorry. And at at that time, next thing I knew, I was getting phone calls from different banks with um, different parts of the state. You know, California, Florida, Arizona, where people were making fake identifications and opening up business accounts and credit cards with my name and social security number. And eventually I was able to put a freeze on it. But it's a, it's very, you know, people think you're going to get the bill, but oftentimes the thieves actually divert the bill prior to you knowing that that account has been opened. This also eats up a lot of your time having to take care of something that you had nothing to do with. Hours and it, a lot of it is proving your own identity because then people don't believe you are who you are. And then moving forward, applying for loans, trying to lift your freeze from your credit, it, it requires several days preparation. And then the creditors are aware that there's an issue with your credit, and so then you have to explain that you have to lift the freeze. And then they, it, you know. It's becoming a little bit more mainstream where people are more understanding, and especially lenders know that it's happening. But back in 2005, they thought that, well, you know, what did you do wrong? Or, you know, something to the effect that you were the cause of the theft and that you had bad credit, not necessarily you were a victim. Axon, is this a, a classic case? Absolutely. And I love the fact that you brought up the perception that it that bad credit is is really yours and it's it's your fault because 
in my own personal experience, that was something that I encountered. You're looked at as the person who can't manage their money. You're looked at as the person who doesn't pay their bills. And identity theft is a crime where, as the victim, you are perceived to be guilty until you can prove that you're innocent. And in a way, that's a form of re-victimization. You've already had your identity stolen once, and then the places that you go to for assistance, such as your bank or your credit card issuer, they look look at you with skepticism, thinking that, well, wait a minute, what this this looks like you? Why isn't it you? And right. uh, that that can be re-traumatizing to to the victim. Can this have a long-term effect on your credit rating? I caught it enough early enough, but the re-victimization for many people in different states, I know New Jersey, if you're a victim with a police report, every time you lift your freeze, it's free. But there's other states, or my husband who's not a victim, every time we need to lift our freeze, we get charged by the credit um, resource, or the credit uh, companies. So you have three companies, and they can charge between 5 and $25 per lift. So every time you go and get a cell phone, any time that you get a car loan, any time you get a mortgage, any type of credit check, your employee, when you get a new job and they check your credit score, you have to lift your freeze. Thank you so much for your call, Britt. Um, I suspect um, there are a lot of people who are in similar situations from Britt. Uh, ben from Westchester, you're on the air. Hi. Um, I, I've uh, listened for a long time, but uh, this is the first time I felt like maybe I should call in. Um, earlier this year, it, uh, we got an email from our HR director letting us know that one of the HR staff in, uh, in our office had fell victim to a phishing scam and believed that our CEO had requested all of our 2016 W-2s to be sent to them. Wow. So let's... Person. Okay, so uh, let's talk about phishing. How does phishing work? So phishing is when you receive an email from a legitimate appearing source, such as your bank, and it'll say something along the lines of, you know, we've detected potentially fraudulent activity on your account. Please click this link to uh, reset your username and password. And when you click that link in the email, it will take you to the criminal's website, which oftentimes looks like your bank or other official institution that um, is pretending to request the information. And you know, you, as a potential victim of a phishing scam, you, you're, you're concerned about there being fraudulent activity on your account. You want to react. You're panicking, and so you want to make it right as soon as possible. And when you click that link and you go ahead and, and reset your user ID and password, you're actually giving the uh, criminal your uh, user ID and password, which they then in turn use to legitimately access your account and uh, find w- ways to steal from you that way. So in Ben's story, if they, the phishing had led to everybody uh, the, the the thief getting everybody's W-2, that would be a lot of information that would have been usable to the thief? It would have been, because tax identity theft, 
for lack of a better way to say it, is is one of the more popular forms of identity theft right now. And what tax identity thieves do is they obtain your information, say from your W two, so that you know they need your em- employer, the em- the employer's tax identification number, your wages, and then they will file taxes as you in the hopes of obtaining a refund. And how victims of tax identity theft often discover they've been victimized is when they go to file their taxes and they they click submit to, to send the tax forms to the IRS, they'll get a notice back from the IRS saying that they've already filed a tax return and that a refund has been processed. And when that happens, you have to contact the IRS explain that you've been a victim of identity theft, and the IRS has a procedure in place where they will send victims a a four-digit PIN, and you'll have to use that PIN every time you file taxes in the future. Now, what's, Ben, what happened? What finally happened? Um, Well, so, uh, you know, the the email had already gone out, and, um, you know, there was a lot of... uh, internal rumors on what you should do and uh, um, I thankfully got some information from um, sources uh, like my manager who had uh, the number for the IRS for for reporting this and uh, speaking with the IRS really gave me a lot of other um, places to go like going to Equifax and and, and putting a a 90-day stop on my credit and uh, renewing that every 90 days is something I'm doing right now um, and in the end, the company did uh, end up providing like a, a year service from one of those providers as well to try and give us additional identity theft protection. Uh, and I actually ended up paying for one of the um, one of the commercial services as well, um, uh, LifeLock, just because I I I'm really <laughs> quite concerned uh, over over the breach in 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 my private in my private information. Ben, thank you so much for your call. Uh, what is smishing? We talked about phishing. What's smishing? Smishing is a variation of phishing, and it's when a fraudster sends you a text message, and the text message will say something to the effect of, you know, there's been some sort of breach with your account or, you know, again, we detect fraudulent activity, you know, please reply to this text message with, you know, your login ID and password. And when you do that, again, just like phishing, you're providing that information to a criminal who will use that information to find ways to steal from you. I'm speaking with Axon Betts-Hamilton, Assistant Professor of Consumer Affairs at South Dakota State University. We will continue our conversation. Take your calls at 212-433-9692 after this. And we are back with Axon Betts-Hamilton, Assistant Professor of Consumer Affairs at South Dakota State University. We are talking about uh, uh, identity theft on today's Please Explain and taking your calls at 212-433-9692. Keith from Brooklyn, you're on the air. Leonard, hi. How are you? Thank you for taking my call. I love your show, and I love everything that uh, you do on your wonderful radio station. 
um, and hi, Professor. So I have a question um, about uh, when is the IRS really the IRS? Um, about a year ago, I received a call from someone um, purportedly from the IRS asking me for information, and I'm wondering if you can um, let us know, listeners know, uh, how to identify the real IRS versus uh, a, a fake or phishing expedition. Uh, I've been told that the um, IRS will never actually call you, um, and I just wanted to see if that was true. That is that is true. Um, so what will happen, this is a very popular scam right now, People will pose as the IRS and call you and say you're delinquent on your taxes and we're going to seize your assets. And, of course, that causes the people on, who are picking up the phone and, and hearing this to panic because you, know, they don't want, you don't want to be in trouble with the IRS and you don't want the IRS to take your assets. So panic sets in and you people naturally want to respond and provide the IRS with the information they're requesting. Another dimension to this is that on a person's caller ID, the fraudsters have gotten sophisticated enough where the caller ID will say Internal Revenue Service, and they'll find ways to spoof the number so it actually looks like a legitimate IRS number. So, you know, somebody has Googled what the contact number is for the IRS, they spoof that number, and it shows up on the caller ID to make it look more legitimate. But the IRS will never call you. They will send you letters in the mail, um, and those are official, and you should respond to those. And likely, if you get a letter from the IRS, you need to talk to your accountant or attorney um, to make sure that you respond appropriately. But the IRS will never call you. Um, when in doubt, if you receive a call from someone claiming they represent the IRS, the best thing to do is hang up. And if you are concerned, you can call the IRS directly and uh, make sure that you you don't have uh, any outstanding taxes or other issues with the IRS. No. But never respond when someone is calling you. If you initiate the call, then you know who you're talking to, and it's, it's much safer if you initiate the call. When someone calls you, you really don't know who's on the other end of the line. So it's just best to hang up and, and, and take the time to do a little bit of investigating yourself. No, it's not just the IRS. A number of people have... Uh, written in to ask about all those calls they get on the cell phone from people who are claiming uh, to uh, want to help them with their credit scores and the like. Just hang up on all of those as well? Yes. So, because they're all just phishing? Most likely, yes. Um, and when in doubt, just hang up. Now, for a long time, you would get uh, credit cards that were already uh, uh, usable, uh, is is uh, are the chips that they've been putting in them recently a way of uh, improving the situation? Have they made a difference in reducing fraud or uh, the changing ha or the, the habits of the thieves? Yes. So w with the chip and pin technology, when when you swipe your cr credit card or your debit card that has a, a chip in it. Each transaction is assigned a unique number. So if you don't have a chip and pin card, when you swipe your card, all that's really needed is that 
CVV number, that three or four digit code on the back of your card. That chip and pin technology with that, that extra layer, that unique uh, number that is assigned to every transaction you make has made it more difficult for thieves to uh, duplicate and uh, use your credit card. A listener, Pam, wonders when it's safe to give you medical information out on a computer. I would say that it is never safe to give it out over a computer. um, Now, just today, um, I was actually filling out my benefits information online because I I just started here at South Dakota State this week. And I had to input my personal information, including my Social Security number, my date of birth, my beneficiaries information. And one of the things that I looked for on the website before I input any information was to see if the website was secure. And one way to check to see if a website is secure, meaning that your information will be encrypted, is if in the URL after the HTTP, if there's an S, so if it says HTTPS, that's an indicator that the information that you Uh, input into the site will be transmitted securely. Has your personal history made it more difficult for you over the years because you were a victim of identity theft? Yes, it's over. So my story actually spans 20 years from the time I was 11 to 31. And during that time, I had a lot of negative consequences of the identity theft, one of which being when I went to obtain a car loan when I was in my 20s, my very first car loan, I had a very difficult time finding, being able to get financed anywhere. Did you already know that your mother had done this thing to you? No, I actually did not know that until 13 days after she passed away a few years ago. So um, at the time, I didn't know my mom was behind this, and... The best offer I could get with regard to financing a car it was a five-year-old used car at the time. The, the best interest rate I could get was 18.23%, and that is like putting a used car on a credit card. But I had to start somewhere to rebuild my credit. Again, that idea of being guilty until proven innocent, my credit score at that time was still not rebuilt uh, very well. It had improved from the time I was 19 to you know my early 20s, but it hadn't improved well enough for me to get a, a car loan with uh, good terms. And again, the best I could do was 18.23% interest. Now, in your case, uh, you uh, couldn't have protected yourself the way some do when they're asked those other personal questions. What was the name of your school? What street did you grow up on? What was the name of your first pet? Because your mother would have known all of that. But those Correct. things are are good protections, aren't they? Yes, but when you th- when you think about those those security questions, when you know when you create a new account for something and they ask you to choose your security questions, and you know one of them is what is the name of your first pet and what was the name of your elementary school? You stop and think about that. There are a lot of people out there who know what the name of your elementary school was because they went to school with you. Um, Your close friends probably know the name of your pet. There's just a a lot of those questions and and 
the corresponding answers, you know, I, I just thinking about my own life, I've, I've stopped and thought, you know, how many people out there would know that about me? You know, what one common security question is, what was the make and model of your first car? And when you know, thinking of the people who knew me when I was in high school, when I had my first car, there are a lot of people out there that would know that information. So while those security questions do add an extra layer and help protect your information from strangers, people who are close to you, and actually a fair number of people who are close to you, probably know the, the responses to those questions. Let's take another call. Debbie from Dobbs Ferry, you're on the air. Yeah, hi. Um, about two and a half years ago, somebody got my cell phone number. And mm-hmm. since then, this person has been um, signing up for Quicken Loans, mortgages, and I dare say a penis-enhancing company, and giving um, this phone number. I get Wait, wait, Debbie is requesting calls. penis enhancement? Penis enhancer. I get... I get uh, this I get phone calls from these companies and texts from these companies. Um, over the years, well, over the last two and a half years, um, I have found out his name and where he lives because I, I sometimes pretend I'm him, and they give me the information. So I found out his name, he, where he lives. He lives in Bayside. I've called the Bayside police. I've called his co-op. Uh, the Bayside police said they can't do anything unless I come down and do a um, and, and put in a criminal uh, report. His co-op uh, uh, administrator said it's a it's a civil matter. She can't do anything. It's between me and him. And um, I've blocked his calls. Um, I have uh, told all of these companies that I'm not him. That he stole my identity and that he's a pervert. <laughs> and um, no matter what I try to do. Um, he still has my number, and he's still using it. Have you contacted uh, your phone company? Um, I have not. Um, no. You mean my, my cell phone company? Yes. No, well, he's I using your cell number. so He's that using it's... my cell number to give out my, this number to these companies. So I get texts from them, and I get phone calls from them. In other words, they say, hello, Robert. Um, um, I'm calling from Quicken Loans. Um, I have a great rate for you. Or hello, Robert. You know, so um, th- this is this is how it's been going. And when I block the call, some, that doesn't seem to work either. And I've even told Quicken Loans about this, and they tell me they're going to take me off their list. I guess they have multiple uh, locations in the country, and um, it, it, that doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to happen because I it, because he's able to do it over and over again. And I don't know whether their system is sufficient enough to maybe they just block it for 30 days or something like that. So, Axon, you're suggesting that you get in touch with the telephone server? I would get in touch with uh, the cell phone company, and I would also make a list of all of the companies that contact you that are really thinking they're contacting him along with their phone numbers and any other contact information you have about them and file a complaint with the state attorney general's office because what they will likely do is send a letter to each of the companies and likely to Robert as well. And sometimes those letters are written in such a way that it it scares people into uh, stopping what they're doing. Jan from Plainfield, New Jersey, you're on the air. 
Hi, thanks for taking my call. I actually have a um, a comment and a question, and I'd like to mention my but comment. But you have to make it quick. Oh, okay. Um, okay, my comment is that I hear quite often um, in the news, including on NPR, sadly, uh, people conflate uh, guests, not guests, but uh, experts conflate credit card theft with identity theft. I've heard a number of people say, Oh, I don't care really if my credit card is stolen because my liabilities are kept at 50 bucks, and they don't realize that that's not identity theft. Um, my question, I'll make it quick, is um, what happens if you, see, we're told not to keep our Medicare cards in our purse because or wallet because if it's stolen, the thief has your number. We're told to uh, make a copy and blank out some of the digits. If you keep that in your wallet and you go to the hospital in an emergency and you're, say, in a coma, what happens? Because they don't have your insurance number then when they when they take you in. Accident? The best thing to do in a situation like that is to have a power of attorney or some other substitute decision-making agreement set up so there's an individual identified that knows your information that can act on your behalf. And the best way to go about setting that up is to contact an estate planning attorney. Are certain demographics more likely to be hit by identity thieves? Is it children or is it the elderly, wealthier people? Both ends of the spectrum. Um, So children are more likely to be victims of identity theft than adults. Um, It's actually, there's a, a recent estimate that 6% of adults are victims of identity theft, but it's estimated that 10% of children are victims of identity theft. And the elderly are often targeted for identity theft and other forms of financial crimes because the elderly hold the majority of assets in this country for the most part. And because they, they're perceived to have money, you know, they're perceived to have retirement assets and estates and things that others would like to have. And because of that, they're perceived to have wealth. They're often targeted for identity theft as well as other financial crimes. Axton Betts-Hamilton is Assistant Professor of Consumer Affairs at South Dakota State University. And... She's been our guest today on our Please Explain Look at Identity Thre- uh, Theft. Thank you so much for being on our show. Oh, it was great to be here. Thank you.